Good morning. Our gospel reading comes from John 1, 1 through 5. You can find that on page 1053 of your Pew Bible, or it's here at the beginning of your scripture journal that the church has provided for you. You may notice that this has been something of kind of a, um, a, a text theme today, and it will also serve as our sermon text. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. This is the gospel of the Lord. Glory to you, O God. Good morning. Well, let me just say, I miss Marg today. <laughs> it's good to be with you, and um, it's good to be back. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the time to gather. Now may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable to you. Lord, be with us as your word is proclaimed. Shape our hearts by your word by the power of your spirit, and it's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. <clears throat> there was a song by the group. You know, this is the second time I'm using the Indigo Girls as a, uh, as a uh, sermon illustration. Um, so maybe I've reached my limit on them. But there's a song by the Indigo Girls called Galileo. And uh, it starts off with this line, Galileo's head was on the block. His crime was looking up the truth. Now, if you hear the live version of this song, they introduce this song in a way that kind of speaks a little snarky about the way Galileo was treated. They said, Galileo, you know Galileo, he discovered these truths, and the church shut him down. And kind of everybody you could tell in the crowd can kind of get that narrative that Galileo discovered truths, but the church shut down the truth. It's like the truth or the church got in the way of science and did not let science do what they were supposed to do. Once again, the narrative goes on. The religion gets in the way of science. See, over the past hundred years or so, there's been this growing belief, this growing narrative that religion or faith has no place in science. And that if religion had simply gotten out of the way of all of our scientists, that society can move on and advance at a much quicker pace. But it made me think a little more about this. 
You know, I, I remember learning about Galileo and Copernicus and, and this, this model of the universe that, that uh, it initially was believed to be, the, the earth was believed to be the center of the universe. You all learned this in school. You know how this history went, I believe. And, and, and then Copernicus came, out and, Copernicus came out and said, no, uh, I think the sun's at the center. And uh, then Galileo got a telescope. He looked. He saw more details. He said, yeah, it looks like the, the sun is in the center. But I wanted to hear more about this story because I didn't think this could be quite right, that just all religion and all faith was against science. So I just did a little Google. And uh, I saw this, this article by an Ohio State University astrophysicist named Paul Sutter. And he has a, an article written saying, Going Bananas, the real story of Kepler, Copernicus, and the church. Now this guy isn't a Christian, to my knowledge. Uh, he doesn't really talk about what he believes or anything, but he, he doesn't claim to be any, any, uh, of any faith. And he says, in modern times we neatly separate, today we neatly separate science, philosophy, and religion into their nice tidy boxes. And we get annoyed when members of one box start talking about the contents of another domain. And we view the history of science as scientists fighting against the church to leave them in peace and let them do their sciencey thing. But he says there are two important things to remember when looking at the early history of science around the time of Copernicus and Kepler and Galileo. He says, what we now call science, philosophy, and theology, back then these things were all kind of mingled together. The church had their own scientists. The, the, they, they, they had their own philosophers. They, they were all kind of mixed up together. And he said, beyond that, he said, early scientists back then, they were kind of believing some weird things themselves. And so they made claims and arguments that would kind of sound, as he puts it, bananas today. He said, in fact, Johannes Kepler, who came later, kind of built on Copernicus's model, his argument for actually creating a more accurate version, a more accurate model of the universe, was a religious reason. It was a religious argument. He said that since the Son of God was at the center of the Christian faith, the Son ought to be at the center of the universe. Wow, that doesn't sound very scientific. But he was building on his faith in God. He was building on something completely different. The truth is that instead of, the Christian, of Christianity and the church denying science, running away and getting in the way, the Christian mind is actually responsible for much of modern science and much of our academic success and progress. Think about this. Universities like Harvard, Yale, Princeton, Oxford were all begun by Christians all begun by Christian organizations, Puritans, Presbyterians, Methodists, and so on. Beyond that, scientists spoke of Christianity and its effect in modern science. Francis Schaeffer quotes a, a scientist named J. Robert Oppenheimer, who was not a Christian, but yet he said that Christianity was needed to give birth to modern science. Christianity was necessary, Oppenheimer says, for the beginning of modern science for the simple reason that Christianity 
created a climate of thought which put men in a position to investigate the form of the universe. Christianity was giving birth to curiosity and to a desire to know the creator that created us and created everything around us. It was driving to understand the order. So Christianity has deep roots in science and education and research. Now, let me stop. Because you may be wondering why I'm beginning the, a, a sermon on the book of John, talking about Galileo and Copernicus and Kepler and the universe. Well, it hit me as I was getting ready for this sermon and for this, for this sermon series. I think what struck me so much about this was that we're starting a sermon series entitled, That You May Believe. That you may believe what? Well, it's, it's based on that chapter in John that I put in the email, that verse at the end of chapter 20 that says, these things have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. But we're preaching, all of these sermons we're going to be preaching throughout the, 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 the time where we're preaching through John, we're preaching it in the context of a culture that is telling us every day outside the church that the Bible is unreliable that you can't believe the Bible, that Christianity is a myth, that Jesus didn't live, that all of this stuff that you believe is foolishness. We're in the midst of a, of a context in a culture that teaches us those kind of things, that promotes, that's constantly attacking the credibility of Christianity, constantly attacking the credibility of the Bible. And yet here we are, telling you to believe the Bible is the word of God because that's what we believe. But I think it's important to understand that people struggle with this, that our children struggle with it, that what they're being taught in their schools, what they're being taught in, in different parts of the culture, what they're reading, so much of that goes against and seeks to wrestle and, and, and wrestle away the faith that we grew up with. So it's important that we understand and remember the context in which we live, the context that is trying to tear the faith that we so believe, the faith that we hold dear out of our hands. It's wrestling and struggling with us. And I guess what I want to say here is that in the midst of a, a culture that accuses Christianity of being against science and against education and against research, we have loads of evidence for the reliability of the Word of God. We have reasons to believe, which is why this, the title of this sermon is A Reason to Believe, because not only do we have the Bible in front of us, but we have so much that has been given to us through the research, through science, through what so many people have done to support the reliability of the Bible. So let me first of all say that to believe in God, Jesus, or that the Bible is actually the word of God is not anti-education, not anti-science or anti-history. Maybe you've been struggling with the whole question, can I believe the Bible, when I hear so many scholars say you can't, 
It's full of contradictions. It's full of problems. But yet, what I want to point out is that there are myriads of scholars, of Bible scholars, who have done research and work on manuscript evidence to know that the Word of God is exactly what it says it is. That the Lord gave us, revealed himself to us through his word. So what should we do when we're confronted with information that seeks to discredit the Bible? That tells us that the Bible's full of contradictions. That tells us, as I read in one blog recently, that everybody knows that the Bible wasn't even written until the third or fourth century. It's not true, by the way. But these are the things, in all seriousness, that are being put out and sometimes that are being believed and causing struggle with new believers, with young believers, with us. So I'm going to encourage you throughout this time as, you, as we study the Bible, as we look at uh, different parts of the Word of God and as we are challenged to believe it, to be curious, to ask questions. When you see people, when you see articles criticizing the Word of God, when you hear debates from particular scholars who set out to, to, to discredit the Bible, that you get curious, that you understand and remember that the Bible has withstood these criticisms for years, hundreds, thousands of years. Ask questions. Is that true? Was the Bible actually written in the third century? How do they know that? How does the other side know that? What evidence supports their claim? What's a, what evidence supports our claim? Where's their bias? What might they believe? What is their faith? Before we get started, I want to just uh, talk to you about two books. I want to, I want to put a list out also about um, some of the books that have been very helpful in, in helping people understand what's happened over the years in discoveries that there were, where people come to understand and come to discover uh, manuscripts of, of uh, ancient tests, uh, texts of the New Testament. Um, there's, there's one book that's very readable for someone who hasn't been to seminary and, and uh, just, you know, it's really almost of all ages. It's a book uh, that you may have heard of by a guy named Lee Strobel. It's The Case for Christ. And there's also another one he has called The Case for the Real Jesus. I've read them both, and they're, they're very informative. They're very helpful. He, he interviews top scholars in Christianity to help understand. He, he asks them hard questions and gets explanations about how we can know that John wrote John. How do we know that these are reliable manuscripts? Another one is, is called, I just learned of recently, by a guy named Michael Kruger, and it's called The Question of Canon. And uh, I think some, uh, some of, of our brothers and sisters here have read that book, uh, and I've heard that it's very helpful. I have not read that, but uh, I've heard much about it. So, so now let's get into, uh, into the book of John here. What evidence do we have for John's gospel being historically reliable? How do we know that this is John's gospel? 
Because, you know, when, when, you, when you see the gospel, it says the gospel according to John, the gospel according to Matthew. Gospel. Well, the, the ancient manuscripts don't have that written on there. None of the gospel, John is the only one who comes close to identifying himself. But Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they don't identify themselves. So how do we know who wrote these books? How do we know who wrote these gospels? Well, first of all, we have testimonies from church fathers from back in the first and second century. That's only not even a hundred years before, a hundred years after these, these books were written. We have a guy named Irenaeus, early second century, 120 AD. We have a guy named Papias, who was bishop of Heriopolis around the second century early 2nd century. Now we also have one you might have heard of, probably the most popular one is Polycarp, who was a bishop of Smyrna, and he was also a late 1st century, early 2nd century. So these church fathers were around and were, were talking about who wrote these Gospels. In their writings, Irenaeus will say, will speak of Mark's Gospel, will speak of Matthew's Gospel, Luke and John, Papias will say the same thing. Papias talks about being uh, affiliated with Polycarp and being affiliated with people who knew the Apostle John. And Polycarp of Smyrna was allegedly a disciple of the Apostle John. All of these are giving their own testimonies of who wrote these Gospels. These Gospels were continued through that first century time. Now, to compare, if we look at something like Homer... Uh, which, you know, um, Homer's Odyssey that was written supposedly in the 7th or 8th century. The earliest discovered manuscript for Homer's Odyssey is late 2nd century AD, maybe the early 3rd century. That's eight to 900 years after it was supposedly written. Whereas fragments of the Gospel of John, one of the oldest ones we have, one of the oldest ones on record, is found, it's, it's got a section of John 18, verses 31 and 32, I believe, 31 and 33. That fragment dates to the early 2nd century, maybe 50 years after the book of John was supposed to have been written. That's very close. Not to mention the thousands of manuscripts that, that they have on record of the New Testament, the Gospel writings, and all the New Testament writings. Brothers and sisters, there's a lot of manuscript evidence showing that the Bible that we are reading, that you're holding in your hand today, is very accurate to what was written originally. So be encouraged by that. There's, there's, you can get lost in all the information. But please know that there is information, that there is evidence, scientific evidence, to uphold the reliability, the historical reliability of the life of Christ and the testimony of Christ's disciples. So, this is written that you may believe. What are we called to believe? We're going to look at the first part of John's gospel here. Um, John was writing, believed to, to be writing to a community of Greeks and a community of Jews 
and Samaritans who were believing in the Messiah, in Jesus as the Messiah, but as a result, they were cast out of the synagogue. And so this, this community was sent, was sent out of the synagogue. They were uh, um, uh, persecuted. They were shunned. Some believe they, they went to Ephesus, where John was. And John wrote his gospel to declare to them, to remind them who Jesus was and the fact that they could rest in the fact that Jesus was the Christ, the Son of God, and that they weren't wrong in doing and believing what they believed. They weren't wrong in moving on and allowing themselves to be cast out of the synagogue and clinging to Christ. So you notice John starts his gospel differently than any other gospel. You know, Matthew, Mark, and Luke are called the synoptic gospels, meaning to see together. And you know that, that as you look through Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they are very similar in, their, in the events that they include. But John's is different. John covers a very small amount of time and, and focuses on Jesus. Jesus speaks more about himself in John than anywhere else. You'll see more about the divinity of Jesus in John's gospel more than anywhere else. John's gospel is written differently. And many believe that John already knew, John was very familiar with Matthew, Mark, and Luke being out there. And so this is kind of, kind of a complement to what they had written to talk more about Jesus. So we're looking at five verses this morning, five verses in this prologue. Now, this prologue, if you notice, the prologue is, is John 1, 1 through verse 18. And it's, uh, the, these, these verses that we're looking at today are written in, in kind of a poetic form. And what you see here, what we're going to see, is that John is introducing Christ by calling him the Word. And what we're going to see in this is that he is introducing Christ, the Word of God, as the source of creation, as the source of salvation, and the source of revelation. Okay, so he's starting off, and he is going right at it, and he's going to declare Jesus, the Word of God, as the source of creation, the source of salvation, the source of revelation. D.A. Carson calls this part like a foyer. Like walking into a house, you go into a foyer. It's a place where it welcomes you. Uh, another commentator I like calls this prologue an overture. Did you ever go to a musical and you and, and the first song of the musical is an overture and it's got little snippets. It's got this little mashup of all the music that's going to be happening throughout the whole story. And that's what's happening here. So what we're going to see in these five verses, just these five verses alone, we're going to come into contact with some of the themes that we're going to see throughout the rest of the book. So this, pro this prologue is going to serve as this overture to prepare us to get into the Gospel of John. So John, starting off his Gospel, he says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So in the beginning, those three words, do those sound familiar? As I said, he's writing to a community of Jews, Greeks, and Samaritans, but familiar with the Old Testament. And those words, in the beginning, he's comparing those. He's, he's using and calling upon the book of Genesis, the very first book of the law, going all the way back to the beginning. 
And he's saying, in the beginning was the word. And this word, in the beginning, these are the same words. It's uh, in Greek, it's anarche, and that's the same beginning of, gen of the Greek version of Genesis, anarche. He's saying that purposely to compare the word of God with God, to, to, to bring them together. And he's saying, in the beginning, before time, all the way back to eternity, before anything was created, was the word. Notice how many times was is used as well. See, was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. That's also intentional. Throughout John, you're going to find Jesus use the term, or the, 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 the phrase, I am, identifying himself. The most dramatic one is when he tells the Pharisees, before Abraham was, I am. And they knew exactly what he was saying. He's saying, I am. I am. What God called himself to Moses, the name that God gave himself to Moses. And this is the past tense of I am. It's the, the beginning. In the beginning, the word was. The word was with God. The word was God. And the word was always throughout eternity. Now this word for word is probably one of the most common Greek words that we, that we know. The word logos. And I've always, I've always seen this word in John 1 referring to a Greek context. And that's appropriate. John was writing also to people who knew Greek and were familiar with Greek history and Greek philosophy. And to the Greeks, a logos was kind of this, uh, this overall order, this, um, this directive, this reason, the reasoning of the universe. And John was saying, in the beginning, this logos that you Greeks know was with God. And the Logos was God. He was in the beginning with God. But what's also interesting is he, he was writing to Hebrews as well. He was writing to Jews. He's referencing Genesis 1. So there has to be some Hebrew reference here as well, doesn't there? It so happens there is. And it's pretty interesting how, uh, how John uses this in the context of the book of Genesis and how it was translated. There is a, um, there's a version of the Old Testament as, uh, as Aramaic was being spoken, the Old Testament was translated into Aramaic. And that version is called the Targum, T-A-R-G-U-M. And there are different uh, translations of the Targum. But let me tell you, let me read to you a couple verses out of the Targum, a Palestinian Targum, from the book of Genesis. And it says this, out of, one, out of Genesis 1, verses 16 and 17, it reads, The word of the Lord created the two large luminaries. See, this word, for, this word, word is being used here in the Aramaic. And the glory of the Lord set them in the firmament. And then in Genesis 2, 2 through 3, it reads, On the seventh day, the word of the Lord completed the work which he had created. And the glory of the Lord blessed the seventh day. I mean, we can take it to the Hebrew. And Psalm 33, 6 says, By the word of the Lord, 
The heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth, all their host. When John said, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, they knew what he was referencing. The power of God, the law of God, the Word of God, all that was involved in creation. He was in the beginning with God. And in verse 3, all things were made through this word, this logos. All things were made through him. And I like how John words this. And without him was not anything made that was made. Everything was made by the logos. Everything was made through him. The word is the source of all creation. That is what John's message is here. At the very beginning, he's saying the Logos, the Word, is the source of all creation. But he goes on, he's also the source of all salvation. How is he the source of salvation? The next verse, very simple. Verse 4, in him was life. This is not just that the Word was alive. Not just, not just life like in you and I, we have life in us. But you see, we're going to see that, that throughout this book, you're going to see these themes replay. One thing I forgot to mention, in John 17, 5, back in the eternity, when, when he says the word was, was with God in the beginning, remember what Jesus prays to the Father. He says, and now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the world was created. John is telling it, and Jesus is repeating it. Same thing with this life, that we're going to see this, that John says in him was life. This is not just life, this is eternal life. This is life that cannot be snuffed out. And see what Jesus says about himself, the life in himself. In verse five, chapter 5, verse 25, truly, truly, Jesus says, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live 26, for as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. What kind of life is that? Life that gives life to the dead. Life that brings the dead back. That is the power of the life that is within the Word. That is the message of John when he's introducing the Word. He has been in all creation. Nothing was made that was not been made. Without him, nothing was made. And he is the source of eternal life, making the dead alive, delivering and bringing salvation to those who have no life. And finally, he is the source of revelation. That life that Jesus had, that eternal life that the word had, that was also the light of men. We see this in John 8, 12. I am the light of the world. Jesus says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Verse 5, the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. He is the revelation of God. He is the one, the word, the logos, reveals the Lord, reveals God to the world. Little note on this word here for overcome. Some of your Bibles may say, but the darkness 
could not, over, could not comprehend it. Anybody ever see that? Cannot comprehend it. And yet, mine says, the darkness has not overcome it. Well, what's the difference here? Well, that word, that Greek word, is intentionally ambiguous. Tim Keller compares that to the word master. We can, we can master our, our pet. I have not mastered my dog, but when I do, I will control him and know, and he will listen and do everything I say when I say it. That's mastering my dog, but I can also master calculus. Well, I can't yet, but if I, if I did master calculus, that would mean that I understand it completely, that I understand it, then I can, I can work with it. I'm not controlling it, but I can work it. And same thing here. There's a sense where the darkness cannot control the light of the word. There's a sense where the darkness doesn't even understand it. It's beyond, beyond the knowledge of the darkness. And we see this theme that we're going to see as we get into John 12, when Jesus says, the light is coming, is, is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons and daughters of light. Psalm 119, thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. I was listening once to a, a sermon by Alistair Begg, and he was saying on John's gospel, John's message, when he says that these things have been written so that you may believe, Alistair Begg says, these things have not been written so that you ask Jesus into your heart. I was kind of taken back by that. He's saying that's not the point here. These things were written so that you would believe that you would believe that which was written. John is saying in this whole message, for us to know the creator, for us to know our creator, we come first to the word. We come first to Christ. For us to understand and to have eternal life, we come first to Christ. For us to have any understanding of who we are and the plan God has for us, that he has laid before us, we are to come to Christ. That's the message here. He's laying it out and introducing Christ as the only source for our creation, for our salvation, for our revelation, that it is all found in Christ. But the bottom line is that message is put before us John put it before his community, and it's put before us today. It's put before you, and it's there for us to do what we will. What will you do with the message that John gives us? What will you do with the message of truth that comes regarding the word of God? Ask yourself this morning, do I believe this? Do I believe that what John is saying of the word of Christ is truth? 
And then if you do, or if you don't, ask yourself, what am I going to do about it? What am I going to do with this message? Amen. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for your message. Lord, I pray that you would bring the truth to our hearts, open our eyes only in ways that you can. Lord, I pray that you would shape our hearts and direct our eyes to look toward your light. Lord, help us to not love the darkness, but to love the light. And may we come to know you in a greater way through the message of this book and through the message of your word as we go from here. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.